We recorded this episode as a part of a podcast series on the occasion of COP27. Each episode illustrates the breadth and depth of Marshall McLennan's climate capabilities. The issues addressed throughout the series include investment transition, the insurance sector's role in climate adaptation, communities and businesses' exposure to physical risks, and how companies need to address the inextricable link between climate and nature. Find more information about how Mercer, Marsh and other Marsh McLennan businesses will be addressing these issues at COP27 and beyond in the podcast description. Welcome to Critical Thinking, Critical Issues. COP27 has just come to a close. For some, this COP was labelled as the COP of implementation, a COP that would ignite a move from pledges to putting climate plans into action. For others, this COP was labelled the COP of Africa, in that it would emphasize the climate issues most pertinent to African and other developing nations and seek to mobilize finance from developed countries to support developing countries in adapting to climate impacts and compensating them for loss and damage. The Institutional Investors Group on Climate Change, the IIGCC, noted, the biggest and arguably legacy-defining moment from COP27 was the agreement amongst national governments to create a loss and damage fund to aid vulnerable countries to deal with the impacts of climate change. But despite this landmark agreement, the IIGCC also notes that, critically, there was no significant progress on closing the ambition gap and keeping a rise in global temperatures to 1.5 degrees possible. While some countries pushed for the final COP27 agreement to reference peaking emissions in 2025, this did not make it into the final text. And similarly, there were no significant new steps taken since Glasgow's COP26 on reducing dependence on fossil fuels and reducing emissions this decade. While this does add to uncertainties on our ability to achieve a credible pathway to a 1.5 degree scenario, what it does highlight is the increasingly urgent role investors have to play in trying to make this a reality. I'm Inga West, a sustainable investment specialist in Mercer's investment solutions team. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Holger Bergen, Global Chair on Sustainable Investment at Mercer, and John Green, Global Chief Commercial Officer of 91, to explore how asset managers are supporting the climate transition and gain practical insights on how global capital can be harnessed to target local climate challenges. So welcome, Holger. Welcome, John. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Inga. So let's start with you, Holger. Mercer recently surveyed more than 400 global asset managers with aggregate assets under management in excess of $51 trillion. Now, what did the results tell us about where managers are on the transition journey? Thanks, Singer. Um, what we found was that overall the key message is that managers in many cases are yet to define and set science-based targets um, and I think very important that we talk about science-based climate targets because they allow us to really quantify, track and measure the ways in which these portfolios are decarbonising and uh, facilitating the transition. Uh, so 
going to the survey that you mentioned, um, essentially what the survey results showed, and this survey was conducted in September, so in preparation for COP27, um, it showed that um, only 16% of the managers surveyed of that uh, 51 plus trillion uh, of assets under management, so 16% have set uh, science-based net zero targets and 73% of those asset managers um, say that they are yet to set uh, their targets. However, that said, of the cohort of managers that do um, consider climate and net zero in their asset allocation and their portfolios, a good proportion, uh, close to 50%, actually track company and country net zero commitments. So that shows that managers are actually um, using those sorts of metrics in their portfolio portfolios. And um, but offset against that, um, 53% don't. So you can see that it's sort of roughly half half are engaging um, in terms of tracking, uh, and um, roughly half are not yet doing so. Um, another result that came out of the survey was that there are uh, core transition metrics that managers look at, and so about 58% of managers track the absolute emissions of their investee companies, while 39% track forward-looking transition metrics. And I think when we talk about climate and net zero, um, the uncertainty of what lies in the future is there, but we need to have ways in which to shape the portfolio, think about transition and companies. So I think the forward-looking part of this work is uh, very important. So I might uh, leave it there and uh, ask hand to John. Yes, John. So thank you, Alga, for, you know, sort of covering the overall landscape. Clearly still a lot that needs to be done. Um, John, maybe can you take us through what 91 is doing in terms of any transition plans or setting any targets? <clears throat> sure, Inga. I think um, we signed up to the Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative uh, in June 2021. Uh, we were, I think, manager number 89 or 90 not quite 91. Um, but uh, I think that says a few things. It, 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 it says that we, we didn't rush into uh, signing up because we felt that signing on um, it brought with it a lot of responsibility to commit to targets uh, and to think through those targets very carefully. Um, and so before committing, we had spent a lot of time thinking through how should you approach targeting. And we have been guided in that process by two really important principles that, that we feel very strongly about. Much of it guided by our heritage as a manager that has roots in an emerging market and actually a market that is very carbon intensive and we think could be, you know, meaningfully affected uh, both potentially positively and negatively by the transition imperative. Um, but th those two key principles were around, first and foremost, real-world transition, not portfolio transition. And then secondly, a just and inclusive transition. Uh, and so when we set about thinking uh, about our targets, those were uh, really important guiding principles. Uh, so where have we gone uh, with our targets, uh, which we've now established a year after, uh, a year after joining 
uh, the Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative. We've set targets f- fundamentally from a portfolio point of view uh, focused on financed emissions, not carbon intensity. I think that's the first uh, point to make. We think that's the most relevant m- measure as an investment manager. Uh, the second thing is that our targets are very much forward-looking. So our targets are about the percentage of our portfolio financed emissions where companies have a science-based or equivalent uh, a target for transition. So our commitment is to 50% of our assets, sorry, 50% of our financed emissions will be uh, with invest investee companies uh, who have, by 2030, who have science-based um, transition plans. And we think that that, particularly for uh, meeting those two principles, forward-looking, but also real-world uh, reduction, um, and taking account of um, a um, fair transition in emerging markets is the right way to think about it. We have other targets which relate to our corporate Scope one and scope two emissions, but that's not the big issue for for, for investment managers, and those targets are also uh, aligned. The interesting thing for us in that process uh, was that when you look at financed emissions, we we hold across the firm roughly one thousand two hundred corporate securities mm-hmm. in various uh, in various shapes. Twenty five of those securities account for fifty percent of our financed emissions. So it brings you back into where should the focus be. Uh, and, and when you think about it in those terms, working with, engaging with, developing plans with those 25 companies is where we can have uh, a very meaningful impact over time. And so that's what we're doing. Great. Thank you. Um, you've briefly touched on sort of your linkages to emerging markets and things like that. Um, The IIGCC also highlighted that um, along with the focus on loss and damage, that COP27 reiterated the need for greater investment in emerging markets. And they noted, and I think we all are aware that generally much of the conversation we've seen and the investment to date has been towards climate mitigation and adaption focused on developed and wealthier countries. But they've, you know, stressed that if we are to deliver on net zero globally, it will require a global response. And that means getting more capital flow into emerging markets. And Alga, I know that that was, I think, one of the, the things that the survey focused on is around the, the allocation of capital to emerging markets. And, and there are some challenges around that. But what do you believe, you know, maybe for either of you or both of you, um, is, you know, the, 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 the importance of allocating capital to, to emerging markets? I think, it's, I think it's enormous. I mean, today, 50% of the 40-odd gigatons of carbon emitted every year comes from emerging markets. 90% of the growth of that between now and 2030 is going to come from emerging markets. And for me, it's like, the, you know, you've got, you, you're building a puzzle. The big center of the puzzle is about how you solve the emerging market transition. And it feels like capital is all kind of filling in the sides, but nobody is thinking about the center. And so, yes, it was a topic that was fairly and squarely on the agenda, 
Um, from my perspective, I think it didn't get enough, particularly the transition in emerging markets, didn't get enough attention because a lot of the attention uh, was on loss and damage. Um, and, and, and so I, f- I felt that that, that was a, a point missed uh, largely in, in, in the conversations. Critical uh, and needs a lot more attention. Yeah, I agree. And I think um, we have to be very clear about this transition of wealth from developed to emerging markets. And one thing that is um, a trend perhaps is that many of the developed market investors in wanting to decarbonise their portfolios look at the carbon intensity of emerging market companies in emerging market countries and are uh, decarbonising their portfolios, which actually creates uh, another challenge for emerging market countries and companies because then their cost of capital goes up and uh, it doesn't help their sovereign debt issues. Um, John, am I allowed to throw in a question here and disrupt our narrative? Uh, How do you deal with that tension Um, as an emerging market investor, I think uh, because with, I think it's a, a genuine tension, isn't it, with this, uh, prob- you know, the problem of what we're talking about here. With a lot of difficulty, and mm. it's one of the reasons why we are such an active advocate mm. for this question of of don't, don't decarbonise the portfolio without thinking mm. about the real world. And as you said, emerging market uh, indices are twice as carbon intensive if if you use carbon intensity as a measure as developed mm. world indices mm. so if you're decarbonizing if your only measure of a portfolio carbon exposure mm. is carbon intensity if that's the only way you're thinking mm. about your action as an investor you're going to naturally move away from emerging markets we have had clients divest from the emerging market equity portfolios with the principal reason being mm. Uh, it's too carbon intensive. Yeah. Uh, and so it is a very, very difficult position. And I think that's where it's really important for the consultant community and the investment management community to speak with almost a consistent voice around that does not solve the problem. Yeah, yeah. Great. Um, just another point on that. I mean, you're speaking about carbon emissions and intensity and things like that. I think the survey, Helga, also highlighted some other challenges that investors find when, you know, looking to possibly allocate to um, emerging markets. Um, can you maybe talk mm. through some of those findings? Yeah, I think uh, it's really important to highlight that investors look for certainty and for frameworks. And obviously, there's a lot of perception and um, about emerging markets being uh, very challenging, um, that risk is, um, you know, quadrupled perhaps in comparison to um, other areas in, through into which uh, to invest. So our survey showed that there's a kind of a trust gap uh, regarding data when it comes to climate data, particularly and disclosure, um, comparing developed to developing markets. And so in the survey, the managers said that they regarded uh, climate data from companies in emerging and frontier markets to not be robust, and that was 60% of managers compared to uh, data um, for developed markets. Um, About almost a quarter of managers uh, considered that the data on absolute emissions, which is a sort of a fundamental or core measure, um, to be robust 
Um, and But in, if you compare, 57% uh, would say that the data is robust uh, in developed markets. So if you compare those two. Um, the other thing is that we found was that managers did use sustainability um, themed equity and sustainable types of strategies when they did allocate to emerging markets. So we saw uh, sustainability themed equity in fairly equal measure across Africa, Latin America, Asia and Eastern Europe, so all between 22 and 25%. Um, but that said, key asset classes we would consider around infrastructure, private debt or real estate um, only about 6% of managers in our survey allocated to those asset classes. And if we link back to the previous question, why is it important um, to allocate capital to emerging markets? It's important because ultimately we're all part of one world. We want global financial stability. But we can see from this survey we also need that capital to sustain and uh, support infrastructure uh, urban development and so on in a sustainable way. <clears throat> and just to just to sort of comment on those, I mean, it's I, I would say totally totally consistent with the expectation that emerging market company data is worse mm. than developed market company data. Um, you know, if you if you wind back the clock to the years where emerging market equity investing was just not popular because, well, we don't really understand the accounts that well. We don't really understand. Uh, you know, company governance that well, et cetera. Um, I think we're in a stage now where, where, where the, the sort of the reliance on investment manager assessment, investment manager judgment, forward looking commitment. I mean, CapEx is going to become before carbon measures change, for example, uh, are really important to facilitate this, this, this flow. Point number one, but also point number two, the activity uh, that that many companies want to undertake. So for me, one of the really positive takeouts, and there there weren't that many, but one of the really positive takeouts of, of COP twenty seven was the number of emerging market companies who were there, um, basically as part of their national delegations, and who were there with really really credible transition plans for the way they do business and the way they operate to reduce their carbon intensity. Uh, and, and so that was one of the highlights. Um, and so I think you're going to see data change very quickly, but do we wait for data to change or do we, yeah. do we sort of assess and, 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 and judge and make that capital allocation now? And I think that that is really a case uh, currently for, for, for taking some forward-looking decisions about capital allocation. Thanks, John. I think you've, you've partly covered it. Um, but other than, you know, looking at the data and the challenges there, um, you know, we obviously know 91 is a very active investor in emerging markets. What are some of the other challenges outside of data that um, um, investors may have yeah. So I, I think the yeah. biggest challenge in... Helga, you refer to is, is this perception of risk versus return. Mm. Um, you know, at at and particularly at cyclical low points. You know, we are we are at a dollar peak almost, uh, and therefore, uh, relative to a dollar peak, emerging market assets will typically be at a cyclical low. 
So at a cyclical low point, it's uh, it's always very difficult to to assess the risk versus return uh, capacity. But when we peel back the onion on the question of of risk versus return, we see some incredibly positive um, uh, guidance and 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 data. So, for example, one of the thing one of the areas that we think is most powerful in the transition in emerging markets is debt. Uh, lending and debt capital flow. Uh, and then when you look at emerging market corporate debt, as an example, it's one of the best risk-adjusted return asset classes in fixed income over the last 20 years. Now, that's not a perception that would probably be foremost in asset owners' minds when they think about allocating capital. So we think there's evidence of a high-quality risk-adjusted return asset there's also evidence of, of companies wanting to make a difference to the transition. Isn't that a fantastic combination? So I think, I think it, really, it, it really lives with ourselves as managers, yourselves, Helder, as, as, as consultants, to sort of peel away a little bit of the myth of the, the, it's impossible to earn decent return. Mm. Uh, relative to risk yes. in emerging market capital flows. Yeah, we've done, I think I've mentioned to you before, John, some interesting studies with uh, MITRE advisors and the Inter-American Development Bank where we looked at um, sustainable infrastructure in Africa and also in Latin America. And in a number of the projects, the actual risk and return was more robust than like projects in developed markets. So there is a role, I think, for consultants and managers to, as we said earlier, communicate and do some myth-busting. Yeah, we, we, we run a, a strategy which invests into infrastructure in Africa. Over 20 years, we've, we've put money to work behind 90 projects. Our loss ratio is less than half a percent. All of those in infrastructure typically related to power, water, uh, many of the sustainable factors, and, and many of them in renewable energy. Now, if I'd asked you what do you think the loss ratio was, you would probably be six, seven, eight percent as the as the gut feel, less than half a percent loss ratio. So, that's the, those are the examples that we have to bring out, and it it, it takes a conviction, uh, I think, particularly in the ecosystem, because pension fund trustees are obviously cautious; they're right to be cautious. Um, you know, managers are typically not managing that that these kinds of assets, often in these spaces. Um, but I think coming together to to address those barriers is important. One other barrier that I just uh, like to mention: I think that the early movers in target setting set only portfolio carbon intensity reduction targets. Most of them linear between you know twenty twenty and twenty thirty. And achieving those targets means it's very, very difficult to allocate to transition assets or green assets in emerging markets. Because even if you do allocate, they're typically pushing up your carbon intensity. So one of the ways of dealing with that barrier, we think, is to is to is to ring fence a piece of the portfolio that is that is very focused on transition uh, investing in emerging markets and measure the impact differently. Measure the impact with forward-looking, um, uh, you know, forward-looking uh, carbon measures, forward-looking um, uh, carbon-reduced or, or carbon-avoided type measures. Mm-hmm. Anything else, Halga, that you think is needed? I think that 
briefly covers, you know, what's needed to move the needle to try and get more assets flowing into emerging markets. Is there anything else that, that you believe um, needs to be done or, or can support that? Mm. Our survey really highlighted that there's a need for a strong framework and consistency for asset managers to really understand and, as you say, peel back the onion and frameworks like the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure and also to get confidence. Um, managers said in the survey that they would like to invest um, from sort of OECD-type countries into um, these emerging markets and have that governance and disclosure process to help um, the wealth uh, transition process too. So there's a, uh, a big issue around governance and having consistency of measure that came through very strongly. And also um, the um, survey showed that the majority of managers really want to have a consistent framework on ESG disclosure. But I did also want to uh, pick up the point that I think we've both um, took away from COP27, which was is the importance of the impact and the role that uh, sustainability plays in these markets and the human story. And that's what I took away from being at COP, the incredibly confronting and wonderful human narrative that is at COP um, and that as investors we have to remember that we are investing for people and for the future and address issues that the Sustainable Development Goals try to focus on. Salination, a massive issue in um, many African countries and biting hard into economies, uh, water stress, poverty, etc. So I think it's very important when we talk about this work that we understand we need the governance, we need to bust the myths around risk, but we also have to fully address um, and look into the eyes of the people that we saw there. I think the amazing thing for me is that um, in so many circumstances in developing economies, if 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 you address uh, the, the the decarbonisation question actively, it can have such positive social knock-on mm. impacts because you can bring energy to places that never had it before. I think there's an enormous amount of reskilling and 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 job creation opportunity, and also in this, what what was another positive for me from COP is how some of the developing and emerging market economies are really jumping onto the opportunity that decarbonisation presents. I thought, you know, Namibia produced this very ambitious plan uh, to develop and uh, deliver hydrogen, and they've partnership with the European they've partnered with the European Union to do that in a very creative way. And this is just a totally new leg to their economy. It's a, it's a, it's a fantastic example. So this, this opportunity to combine environmental impact with social impact, I think, is really one that plays out in developing economies uh, if we face off to the transition investment opportunity. Great. Thank you so much, Helga and John. I think these insights have been um, really helpful. And um, I think... You know, maybe just before we close off, if we, if there are any key takeaways or highlights that you'd like to share, um, or any calls to action, I mean, I know the audience listening today will 
be probably quite varied. We'd have asset owners, other asset managers, perhaps, um, and even individuals, you know. Um, is there anything that you'd like to to leave him with today? So, so what was the disappointment for me at COP? The disappointment was that the public role in the developing economy transition just really undershot expectation by a long way, by a very long way. And there's all sorts of reasons for that. Um, you know, even even the one step away from the the, 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 the the real sort of, let's call it public debate, the multilateral development banks, I thought, were, were, were just not innovative and not thinking about how they could really have an impact on this question. And so for me, the urgency is that the private sector really engages with this. And I see a really interesting opportunity for bottom-up transition, company-driven, private sector-funded, at commercial rates, in, a, in, in good structures, uh, is something that really is a positive takeout. So I would say really engage with that opportunity uh, as asset owners, as consultants, and as managers. And if we push to that opportunity, uh, I think you'll see a bigger difference much more quickly. Yes, I think that's a very good point. The other thing that perhaps tempers um, what you've just talked about is that notion of the capital stack so that when we go into these economies, we have different uh, stakeholders, uh, financial actors, but as you say, disappointing um, at the policy and public level um, agreed, and uh, we need to push a lot harder. Um, and I think um, that, you know, my final sort of takeout from the COP is that it's an ongoing process and we can't look to it to solve the world's problems in a meeting. And so um, this conversation and conversations like it are going to be very important to go further. And also a bit of a reality check. Um, uh, a colleague highlighted to me uh, yesterday the actual capital allocated to, adap to adaption uh, among institutional investors is something like 2.3% globally, and that's um, banks, corporations, etc. So if we look at the extent to which we're actually making money work to solve these issues, we still have a very long way to go. So sorry if that sounds a bit negative at the end of our lovely podcast, but um, it's a reminder and really to reinforce your point, John, that the urgency is there. Private capital has a wonderful, innovative um, role to play. Thank you, Olga, and thank you, John. Um, very valuable insights that you've um, shared with us and clearly highlighting that there is a lot more work to be done. But as institutional investors and financial intermediaries out there, they say with great power comes great responsibility. So we need to take up the baton and, and do our bit. To the listeners out there, thank you very much for joining us today. If you would like to read the full report that Halga shared with us, um, you can find the details in the podcast description below. And if you'd like to discuss the report further, please reach out to your local Mercer representative or email us at ctci at mercer.com. And if you've liked what you heard today, please leave us a review and subscribe. This content is for institutional investors and information purposes only. It does not contain investment, financial, legal tax or any other advice 
and should not be relied upon for this purpose. The materials are not tailored to your particular, personal and or financial position. If you require advice based on your specific circumstances, you should contact a professional advisor. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers as of the date of publication, are subject to change without notice and do not necessarily reflect Mercer's opinions. <laughs>